Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 18. Our sermon text for this morning is Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to hear from you uh, this morning. We come to hear your word. We come to hear your gospel. We come to hear of the work of your son. Uh, We come to hear what you would have to say to us. Uh, Paul says that the scriptures are there to give us encouragement that we might have hope. And so we come to receive encouragement, the encouragement of the gospel. We come to be given hope, hope in Christ. So we pray, Father, that you would speak to us this morning through your word, that your word would be evident in everything that is said, that you would be glorified and exalted. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on us, that we would have ears to hear and hearts to receive what is said. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 18, 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him, that is, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Well, this summer, my family and I got to take a trip to Disney World, uh, for which we are incredibly grateful. And if you've ever been to Disney or even just heard stories, you probably know that uh, one aspect of the parks is not particularly fun, and that is the lines. Uh, We got there on our first day and ran right to our first ride, and we probably only waited 45 minutes. 
which was pretty good. Uh, the line was even interesting, and we were excited, so it went pretty fast. And then as we kind of moseyed through the park, not really knowing where we were going or what we were going to do next, uh, we saw a sign for the Slinky Dog Ride. Actually, we saw a, a sign at the end of the line for the Slinky Dog Ride, and the sign said something like, I can't really remember, 35 or 40 or even 50 minutes from this point. For some reason, we decided that wasn't so bad, and, and, and so we hopped into the line. Now, there were umbrellas covering the line, at least, and the Florida sun had already come out and was blaring down on us. So we got in line, and we waited. We waited the 35 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes. We waited an hour, an hour and a half, and finally made it to the front of the line two hours later. Now, if you ask our boys, they, they may tell you that that was the longest two hours of their life lives. Uh, but I was thankful, thankful for the Slinky Dog wait. Uh, it, it reset our expectations after our first ride. You know, our, our first ride had a relatively short wait, and the line was fun and interesting with lots to look at. Uh, Slinky Dog was long and hot, and we were pretty much in cattle chutes watching the people around us watch us wait in line. <laughs> it was a good reality check. Uh, now, thankfully, by the way, never again did we have to wait quite that long, and so every other line we got in, we could say, well, at least it's not as long as Slinky Dog, as if that made everything better. We wait a lot. Uh, we wait in grocery store lines or on customer service calls. We wait in traffic. We wait in the doctor's office. Uh, we, when we are kids, we can't wait to get older, to get our license, to graduate high school, to go to college, to get married. When we are adults, we can't wait for the weekend or for vacation or for retirement. Uh, we wait by the hospital bed of loved ones. We wait for our children to be born. We wait for illnesses to be over. Much of life seems to be waiting for something. The question is, what do we do in the waiting? What do we do in the meantime? It, it took us a few days at Disney, but we eventually figured out we could play the game heads up while waiting in line. Uh, and there was something to do in the meantime. And there is something to do in the Christian life in the meantime, something to do in the waiting. And here's what we'll see in our passage this morning. God is present and working, though you won't always see it in the moment. But as you wait for God to do what only God can do, you must do what you are called to. Love your neighbors, believe God's promises, and keep your eyes on Jesus. First, love your neighbors. Our story is one of those which is incredibly mundane and fantastically odd at the same time. Uh, Moses tells us in verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So the morning is over, the sun is out, Abraham has come in from the day to rest out of the sun in the heat of the day. Uh, now is the time for napping, not working. And perhaps even he dozes off because it seems suddenly he looks up and three men are standing there. And did he doze off or did they just appear out of nowhere? It's hard to say. But the moment he sees them, his host instincts kick in. And Abraham jumps up and runs from the door of his tent to meet them. He bows down to greet them. And like any good nomad in his day, he offers them his hospitality. 
In fact, Abraham's hospitality here mirrors the Bedouin nomads who live in the Middle East to this day. They continue to live in this manner. Abraham pleads with them to stay in verse three. He offers to provide for all of their needs, water to quench their thirst and wash their tired feet, rest for their bodies, weary from their journey, shade under the tree from the hot sun and bread to refresh and strengthen them for what is to come. And they agree to Abraham's offer. And again, he jumps into action. He goes quickly into his tent where he tells Sarah to quick make some cakes. Then he runs to his herd to pick out a calf to give it to his young man who clearly senses Abraham's urgency because verse seven says he prepared it quickly. Finally, Abraham takes some curds, milk, and the calf and sets the feast before them and stands waiting under the tree while they eat. Why do we have this little story? What what is the point of all this running around of Abraham? Well, if you remember back to the beginning of chapter 17, Abraham was called to walk with God and be blameless. And later in this chapter, God will say that he chose Abraham in verse 19, that he may commend command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And what do we find Abraham doing here? Well, we find him walking before God. We find Abraham doing righteousness. Now, uh, that may seem a little bit odd to you and me. It looks like Abraham is having a dinner party, but in the ancient Near East, this is what righteousness looks like. And let me explain. In the ancient world, right, in a, in a desert nomadic culture, hospitality was one of the highest values. Without hospitality, people remain exposed to the elements, the hot sun here in this case. Uh, without hospitality, people are endangered by bandits and thieves and worse, as we will see shortly in chapter 19. And remember, there are no inns in the wilderness. There are no hotel rooms, no uh, motels. There are no police to keep the streets safe in the desert. You survive because of the goodwill and hospitality of those you run into along the way. Hospitality is not simply about entertaining and appetizers, it was life or death. And even when the stakes weren't so high, it was still about providing for basic needs rather than planning party games. This idea is is going to be emphasized in the next chapter And and so Abraham here is intentionally being painted as the preeminent host, a righteous servant of Yahweh, so that when we get to chapter 19, Sodom will be seen for the wicked people that they are. This is the beginning of the Sodom story. And the first thing to see is Abraham's righteousness. Here is Abraham living as a pilgrim in the promised land, waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. He will become a great nation and his children in the fourth generation will inherit the land. What is he to do in the meantime? Walk before God and be blameless. Teach his household the way of the Lord in righteousness and justice. And that is what Abraham does. He, He walks in the way of the Lord by practicing hospitality. And we should note a couple things about Abraham's hospitality here. We can learn from his example. First, uh, biblical hospitality is about caring for strangers. Three men show up on Abraham's doorstep and he immediately takes them in. Uh, Second, biblical hospitality is about caring for needs, right? Notice how attentive Abraham is to the needs of his guests. He leaves no need unattended. Uh, Third, biblical hospitality is costly. Abraham doesn't hold back here. He, he has Sarah make cakes from three seahs of fine flour. Now a seah uh, was about seven quarts. 
And so three sias is 21 quarts or over five gallons of flour. Don't check my math on that. I'm terrible at math, but that's, I think that's right. He then kills the fattened calf, as it were, and provides curds and milk along with it. Notice Abraham offers, verbally, he offers a little water and a morsel of bread, but Abraham brings out a feast. Uh, he promises small but delivers big. He doesn't boast in his hospitality, but he goes all out. Biblical hospitality is about caring for the needs of strangers in costly ways. Fourth, it's about uh, biblical hospitality is inconvenient. Remember what time it is. It's the heat of the day. All the commentators say it's nap time, right? It's siesta time. Uh, Abraham has spent the day working. Now in the heat of the day, it's time to close his eyes and rest a bit. But no sooner do these three strangers show up than Abraham leaps into action. Hospitality is often inconvenient. And finally, biblical hospitality is servant's work. Notice after Abraham and his house prepare the food, Abraham stands by while his guests eat. Uh, it seems a bit odd to us, perhaps. He doesn't sit down with them and share the meal with them, but he simply stands attentive to their needs, ready to serve. Now, I'm not entirely sure what this might look like today, uh, but just as hospitality is pictured in Abraham, it is commended in the New Testament. You turn to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The phrase, show hospitality to strangers, is actually a single word that literally means love of strangers. It seems clear the writer is echoing the Abraham story. Abraham was entertaining angels unaware. And the writer of Hebrews calls us to do the same. What will it look like for us to, to love the stranger today, to care for the needs of those around us? Not just throwing dinner parties for friends, but going out of our way in costly, inconvenient ways to care for the needs of those we don't even know. Now, you may write off the Abraham story as just that. It's, it's a story, after all. It's a narrative. Uh, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. But the writer of Hebrews gives us a command do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And so the question is not whether, uh, but when and how and what might it look like for you to love the stranger today in costly, inconvenient ways. Abraham couldn't see God working at this point. He was still waiting for God to fulfill his promises. He didn't see God manifest right in front of his eyes at first. But as he was waiting for God to do what only God could do, he was doing what God had called him to. He was walking with God, showing hospitality, loving his neighbor in the meantime. We, as God's people, are waiting on God. And I hope that you are longing for his promises to be fulfilled, longing for the return of Christ, longing for the renewal of all things. The question is, what are you, what are you to do in the meantime? What does faith look like in the midst of the waiting? Well, first, it looks like loving your neighbors. Second, believe God's promises. Loving our neighbor at least gives us something active to do, but one of the hardest parts of waiting is simply persevering in faith, believing the promises when the gap between promise and reality seems so large. Uh, the three men ask Abraham, where is Sarah your wife? Uh, now, th this is one of those points that clues us into the fact, if we, if we couldn't figure it out, uh, that the writer of Genesis doesn't record every detail. And clearly, one of two things has been left out here. Either he leaves out a previous conversation where they learned the name of Abraham's wife, 
Or uh, Moses leaves out Abraham's surprise when these complete strangers know Sarah's name. And maybe this was Abraham's first clue that there was more to these guests than he at first thought. But finally, the writer says in verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Uh, Now, the, the writer knew it was the Lord this whole time. Just look back at verse one. So why only bring in his proper name here? Because Abraham is now figuring it out. Uh, is some random stranger showing up at your door making promises of your barren wife giving birth means one of two things. Either this guy is crazy and you better hide the silverware, or this is the Lord, the only one who can follow through on such a promise. And the narrator tells us two details at this point. Uh, first, Sarah is eavesdropping. Uh, Sarah was listening at the tent door behind the man who was the Lord. She hears his outlandish promise. And second, in verse 11, we're told this, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. You know, what was maybe implicit or implied in chapter 17 is explicit here. Sarah and Abraham are both old, which, and she has gone through menopause, uh, which means uh, all human hope of her having a child is out the door. And so she does the only natural thing when you hear something absurd, she laughs. And she laughs to herself. Uh, she keeps it in. Uh, she, she doesn't want to insult their guest, who maybe she realizes at this point, maybe not, is the Lord himself. But she, she laughs nonetheless. And she says in verse 12, am I... After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She's saying, really? Now, at this point in life, I'm going to have a child? Now, God calls her on it. He says, why did Sarah laugh? And it's interesting because Abraham laughed in chapter 17 and God said nothing. Sarah laughs here and God calls her out. Now, people try to come up with a a good reason for why this discrepancy. Uh, Skeptics will say, well, see, God is sexist. The woman is called out, the man gets a pass. It's an interesting theory, but the the problem is when we get to Luke chapter one, which we'll talk about in just a minute, the man is called out and the woman gets a pass. So it's not that. Others try to find some difference between Abraham and Sarah. Abraham's uh, in chapter 17 was a knee-jerk reaction. It took him off guard. But Sarah has heard the promise before. So this is sustained unbelief, they say. Uh, maybe, I don't know, that, that's a guess, but uh, we can't be sure. And I'm not so sure that we can pinpoint the difference between Abraham's laughter and Sarah's, and I'm not sure that we need to. God engages each of us the way we need to be engaged. It's different every time for every person. Uh, God is drawing each of us to himself through his son, but we are each in different starting places, and we need to hear different things, different true things from Scripture, of course, but different things nonetheless. And so God passes over Abraham's laughter in chapter 17, but he calls out Sarah here. And it is, it, it, that is just what, what it is. That's what he does. Of course, in both cases, the laughter comes from at least partial unbelief, right? Really? You're going to give me children now? Uh, you do realize I'm old, right? You, you do realize I'm past my diaper-changing years, right? What, what are you thinking, God? And notice God's response. His response is, is anything too hard for the Lord? I will come back and I will make this happen. Now, Sarah is a bit uncomfortable being called out. Uh, She had laughed to herself after all. Nobody heard it. Uh, They couldn't prove it, so she denies it. 
I did not laugh, for she was afraid. Afraid of what, you might ask? Afraid of Abraham's ridicule? Uh, Afraid of how God might respond? Afraid of her unbelief showing through? Uh, God simply says, no, but you did laugh. Uh, I, I don't think God is being harsh with Sarah here, just honest. He's saying, face your weak faith, Sarah. Be honest about it. You laughed. That's okay, but it's time to believe. Sarah's response to God calling her out, of course, was not the the best. It wasn't the the right response. Um, Sometimes we are slow to admit our weak faith, afraid of what others might think, afraid of what God might think. Uh, Can I really be honest about where I am in the Christian life with the people around me? There's a story in the Gospels where the disciples are, they they try and fail to heal a sick boy. You may remember it, but when Jesus comes, the Father pleads with him, if you can, have compassion and help us. And Jesus responds in Mark 9, 23, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And the dad's response has become a classic statement of faith. Mark 9, 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And sometimes we hear God's promises and we scoff or we chuckle or we simply doubt. And here is the response of humble faith that clings to the power of God. I do believe, help my unbelief. Of course, this is not the end of Sarah's story, by the way. Hebrews 11, uh, 11, we read, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Her laughter and her fear do not have the last word. God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And apparently she believes him. She believes in his power and what's more, she believed he was faithful. He promised, the Lord, the God of heaven and earth promised, if he said it, he would do it. Sarah received power to conceive since she considered him faithful who had promised. God is present and working, though we don't always see it in the moment. But as we wait for God to do what only God can do, you must do what God has called you to. Love your neighbors, believe God's promises. Even if uh, if we must say, I do believe, help my unbelief. And third, keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, this is just the first of many promises of children to barren women in Scripture, uh, both in the book of Genesis and in the rest of the Bible. Uh, God is on the move to bring about a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. But that promise does not come by human power. God specifically chooses barren women to highlight his power in our weakness. He will fulfill his promises. Of the patriarch's wives, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel are all barren. The mother of Samson was barren. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, barren. The Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4, barren. All barren women for years, some for decades, but God gave them children by his power. The Gospel of Luke opens up with another barren woman, Elizabeth, the wife of the priest uh, Zechariah. She was barren, and they were both old. They had no children. But an angel comes to Zechariah and tells him, Elizabeth will bear a son. Zechariah responds with a question. How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is no spring chicken either. And the angel, Gabriel was his name, rebukes him and causes him to be mute until his son, John, is born. And then in that same chapter, next we come to Mary. Mary's story is interesting. It's a a kind of play on the barren woman's story. It's a variation on the theme, right? Because Mary wasn't barren, 
but she wasn't married either. The angel Gabriel comes to her and says she will bear a son, Jesus, the Son of God. And Mary asks a question. You see the the theme. Uh, How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, on the scale of obstacles to pregnancy, virginity is at the top. Of course, the answer is no different than the Lord's answer to Sarah. Is anything too hard for the Lord? In Luke 1, the angel answered Mary, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. God here, of course, in the womb of the Virgin Mary is not just enabling procreation to happen through more or less natural means, even if miraculous in timing. God is miraculously impregnating the Virgin Mary. And Mary's response is the quintessential response of faith. In Luke 1.38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary, Mary had faith in an even crazier promise than Sarah. But she believed God's promise and his power. She believed God's promise and received Christ miraculously as the promised child who would bless the nations. And God has fulfilled his promise. God has sent a child of Abraham to bless the nations just as he said he would. But first, Jesus as the son of Abraham, who is also greater than Abraham, must walk before God and be blameless. Abraham is a a model of walking with God, of being God's covenant-keeping partner, but even Abraham was not perfect. He is is a picture, not the reality. And when Christ comes, he comes uh, not, not to receive us into his world, as Abraham received the three men, but to enter into ours. He came loving not just strangers, but his enemies. He came to provide not just for our physical, temporal needs, but for our spiritual and eternal ones. His love was at the cost not just of some flour and the fattened calf, but of his own life. He came not at a time that was per se convenient for his schedule, but in the fullness of time, according to the Father's plan. And he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, Jesus came not just to love the stranger like Abraham, but to love us, his enemies. And so he went to the cross to defeat sin, to bring about forgiveness, to give us his spirit and to restore God's righteous order to the world. He has risen from the dead, conquering death, and he ascended into heaven where he sits at the Father's right hand. The resurrection shows us that God rewards those who wait in faith. Jesus went to the cross, scripture tells us, for the joy set before him, trusting in his Father on the cross. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit, and God raised him from the dead bringing him into that joy at the Father's right hand, where he rules over the nations, blessing those who turn to him, having been given all authority in heaven and on earth. God has brought about blessing to the nations through the seed of Abraham. Jesus has come and has risen and is at the Father's right hand. And yet Jesus will come. In one sense, the wait is over. Jesus has come. God has fulfilled all of his promises in the resurrection of the Son. On the other hand, we still wait. We wait for all things to be made new. Sin has been defeated, but we await the day when we will sin no more. Guilt has been removed, but we await the day when the curse will be removed and death will be no more. Christ has come that the promises are fulfilled in his resurrection, 
but Christ will come again, and the promises will be fulfilled when we rise from the dead on the last day. And so we wait. Uh, sometimes we believe we shouldn't have to wait, right? We, we want God's promises now. Uh, we think all of God's promises should be fulfilled in this moment. Uh, God promises no more sickness. Why do we keep getting sick? God promises no more tears. Why are we still sad? God promises victory over sin. Why do we still struggle? But that denies God's timing, his patience in the meantime. And some people twist the promises to say they have been fulfilled already in, in some way, and we, we just need to claim it by faith. Others believe God has failed, or my faith has failed. But re in reality, now we are simply in a time of waiting, like Abraham, pilgrims in a strange land, looking forward to our inheritance on the last day. Jesus has risen and entered in, but we await our experience of the fullness on the last day at Jesus' return. And so keep your eyes on Jesus. Walk with God in righteous love for neighbor. Receive and believe God's promises and keep your eyes on Jesus, knowing that as he rose, so we will rise on the last day when we will experience all of God's promises in their fullness. But for now, we live by faith in the meantime, loving our neighbors, believing God's promises, and keeping our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so tempted to doubt that your promises are true. And so we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, to wait with patience and joy, knowing uh, that the resurrection is coming on the last day. And help us to, to love our neighbors and believe your promises in the meantime as we keep our eyes on Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.